0: Bismillahirrahmanirrahim wa sallallahu wa sallam. Peace and love, beautiful people, and brother Ali. This is the Travelers Podcast. Thank you for being here. We appreciate you. Before we dive into this particular episode, I just want to dedicate it to a great, legendary OG pioneer, elder brother, co traveler on the path of meaning and spirituality that we lost this week. Um, you know, it seems like we're losing a lot more people as time progresses. And it might just be because of the time of life that I'm in. You know, it might just be because I'm in my 40s and so we're starting, to, you know, the more you age, the more people you lose. Uh, it might also be because of social media. You know, it used to be that there was a time when you would have a memory of somebody that you used to be in touch with or somebody that you used to follow and you just hadn't heard from them in a while. You'd be like, what happened to so-and-so? And then you ask around or you look it up and you find out, oh, they actually passed away a couple of years ago. Ah, oh, that's a trip, you know? And now because of the people that we follow on social media, it's very likely that you'll hear about it immediately. And so it may be that, you know, I think that there is something about this time where we're losing more and more people and we're losing really iconic figures that there's really not a replacement for. When somebody leaves this particular plane of life, then we're stuck here without them. You know what I'm saying? And it it can be really challenging because it's like, man, this, this life that we're in is really challenging, really difficult. And one of the things that makes it manageable and even sweet is that we share it with people. And that's really what this podcast is about, that sometimes things are so crazy and you, you share that that bonding experience with someone else who's in that predicament or that situation with you. And it's almost like the crazier it is, the more we, our hearts are bonded together because of what we're going through together. And there are people that make it livable because of the fact that they're here. Some of us shine so bright that we light the way for others, the co-travelers. That's what this whole thing is about, this podcast. So I haven't shouted out every single person that passed away. That's just not something I usually do. But... Just yesterday, when I'm recording this episode, yesterday I attended the Geneza, the funeral service, the homegoing of one of our legendary pioneers and OGs by the names of, of Shems Friedlander, who passed away a couple days ago here in Istanbul, Turkey. Shems was an old-school Jewish-American brother from New York who, in the 60s and 70s, was interested in Eastern spirituality and was part of the counterculture. He was an artist. He was a writer and a thinker and a visual artist and a filmmaker. And he did really dope work. And so, so many people at that time, because of the Beatles and others, were starting to look towards India uh, and just really reimagining who they could be and what the meaning of life might be, questioning the narratives that they had been raised with and thinking that maybe somebody else may have some answers that might speak to us. And so a lot of them went to India or, you know, looked towards India and got gurus and, and, you know, got a... A mantra and things like that. There's a lot of folks that did that, but there was a crew of them that actually on the way there, either they, you know, were taking a train that uh, stopped in places like Morocco uh, or other other places in the Muslim world, and actually instead of getting a guru they got a sheikh. And instead of connecting to Hinduism, connected to Islam, especially through the spiritual traditions, and these like cultural, spiritual institutions uh, that are called tariqas, or uh, some will call them a Sufi order. But these are cultural and spiritual uh, fraternities that people are part of. And they have certain practices and they have certain rituals that they do together. Uh, remembrance of the names of God. And some have chanting and some have whirling and you know, some have certain things that they read together. But all of them have love and service and togetherness. They travel together. And uh, one of the most well-known in the world is, are called the Mevlevis, And this is when you see the whirling dervishes. These are the people that take their spiritual lineage directly from Rumi, the great scholar and poet named Rumi, who's who's uh, buried here in Konya, Turkey. And Shem's Freelander was a brother who encountered them back in the 70s and ended up becoming a Muslim. And for a long time, he lived in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, he actually was a professor at the American University there. And he eventually settled uh, in on the outskirts of Istanbul and spent a lot of time in Konya, uh, Turkey, which is where Rumi is buried. The first time I ever came to Istanbul, we visited what they call their teke, which is like a cultural center or a spiritual fraternal kind of lodge. And I realized that this man who spoke very little or almost no Turkish beyond pleasantries um, was really... Um, a communal elder and leader and somebody that people really loved and adored in that community. And so we came and visited and, and hung out for the day and just got to see, you know, got to witness some of the, the traditions that this group holds. And we saw him be Shems Baba, you know, be like Father Shems. Shems in Arabic means the son. And Shems was the person who came along and kind of interrupted Rumi <laughs> you know, Rumi was a, was a professor of Sharia law. Like he taught the outward law of Islam. He taught theology. He was trained in the classical sciences and that's what he was teaching. And the story goes that Shems was this person that showed up and grabbed his book while he was sitting uh, and reading to a big group of students. He was, you know, Rumi was famous. He was a famous public intellectual that was teaching. And Shems grabs his book and throws it in the water, and says, "When are you going to stop intellectualizing about your relationship with God and with your spiritual path, and when are you going to start being real and living it?" And the people went to attack him, and Rumi says, "No, he's right." And so the two of them develop this really deep spiritual kindred and bond, and Rumi discovers the spirit, the inner dimensions of. The spiritual path in a way that had been sleep in in him before that. And so they become deeply connected and bonded, and then Shems disappears. Uh, Some people say that Shems was killed, others say that Shems left, but Rumi's students felt really... They didn't like... They had tension around this relationship, because once Rumi started his journey of love, then it changed everything, you know, and that's what love does, like it changes everything. And so they they started to be like, oh, we don't recognize this guy. And, you know, some of the things that he's saying and doing, like we don't really understand where this is, where he's going with this stuff. These are things that aren't in the books. These are things that have to be tasted. These are things that have to be experienced. And sometimes they create and cause and prompt and bring about and open up states inside of us that might not always feel sober, that might not always be easy to communicate or even possible to communicate. So some people say that Shem, that Rumi's uh, students, that his theological and law students, actually may have killed him, Shemps, or run him out of town. But either way, Shemps disappears, and so then Rumi has this like longing for his beloved, for his for his dear brother, for his co-traveler in the spiritual path, you know, for his like you know, mystical kind of bond that he has with this person who, like, man, you made life make sense to me, and now you're gone, you know? And so uh, Rumi starts to rhapsodize about what about longing, and he realizes that we're all actually longing for our connection with, with the source, with the divine. You know, he says, why does the, the reed flute, the nay, that flute that they play when you see the, the dervishes, why does that flute sound like it's crying? He says, because the, the, that flute were reeds that were on the bed of the ocean, of the sea, and they were cut and they were removed from the, from so they're crying out for where they came from. And that the spiritual seeker is actually crying because they want to, to reconnect with the divine. You know, the Muslims believe that before we came into these bodies, all of the human beings that ever lived and will ever live, and are living now, that we were all together as a human family, as a collective, and it was all divine witnessing. There was no lying in that time. There was no deception in that time. There was no deprivation in that time. Uh, It was just just and peaceful, and it was balanced, and it was beautiful, and we were just witnessing divine beauty together. And in the Qur'an, the source of all things, Allah says, am I not your evolver? Am I not the one that sustains you? Am I not your Lord? Am I not your caretaker? Am I not your creator? And that all of the human family witness together that we have this origin. So then we come into this plane and this plane is where there is deception and there is injustice and there are lies and there is deprivation. And, you know, the things in this world are crumbling and dying and but we have this memory of where we came from. It's why injustice is like, brings about this real deep sense of righteous indignation and anger, because like, no, this isn't right. And it's also why all of the human beings, you know, we may have different ways of understanding how these things come into the world and what they might look like and how they might be practiced. But we all agree that, you know, love is better than lovelessness and that, generosity is better than greediness and all of the, you know, that that bravery is better than coward, cowardice. We all a- agree on these things, but we live in this world and we're so challenged and we have the, this, this struggle of our own selves. I got all these desires. I've got this animal body that belongs to the animal kingdom, you know what I'm saying, that like has all these needs. And I got all these things that I'm struggling with and I also have beliefs and I also have aspirations and I also have fears and anxiety and worry and doubt. And, and all of these things are going on inside me, you know. And Rumi says that the the, the reed flute cries like that because it, it wants to be reconnected and we want to be reconnected. So uh, every year in December, uh, the people that love Rumi celebrate the day of his death because they say that that's actually his wedding night they call it the Oris. that's the night that he was married and actually got to return to his beloved so they don't celebrate his birthday they celebrate his death date because it's like that's the day that roommate got to go home and we call it a home going you know in the in the the tradition I was raised in was a like an African-American cultural tradition, that when a person dies, they call their funeral their homegoing. And so Shems Baba, Shems Friedlander, is somebody that I didn't know very well. I only was able to be in his presence a handful of times. But the community that he comes from is something that I was a Muslim for 20 years before I even knew that these guys existed, and women that you know i knew that there were black muslims and black american converts to islam that com- that converted as a community and those are the people that em- that embraced me and raised me and taught me and trained me and i knew that that existed and i knew that hip hop had a lot to do with that community that that spiritual lineage is actually what informed the spirituality and the knowledge and the knowledge of self that birthed hip hop in a lot of ways. And even, you know, so many of the traditions, the cypher, for example, comes out of the black Islamic tradition. And so I knew about that, but I didn't know that there was this group of white hippies and counterculture, creative kind of people that became Muslims because of the spiritual traditions and the spiritual teachers and great people in Morocco and, and Pakistan and, Egypt and other places around the world and that these people are still alive and we can talk to them, you know. So I'm really grateful that uh, we got to to um, just be in the presence of Shams Baba, not a whole lot, but I got to know him. And honestly, you know, his death is a great reminder of death in general, meaning that, you know, so many times when, when death comes, There's always going to be a certain amount of regret because it's the end of a period, it's the end of an era, it's the end of somebody's sojourn in this life, and there's there's always some type of regret that accompanies death, and um, you know, Shem's Baba is somebody that I when I came to this country, when I moved to Turkey, I said, man, all right, now I can go and I can hang out with him, and I can spend time with him, and I didn't, I really didn't do it the way that I wanted to. So that's a certain type of, of regret that I have. But what's beautiful is that uh, I was able to be not only at his his funeral, but I was able to return to the Teke uh, and to to be in this communal center in this lodge and to be with the people around him. I was there with one of his longtime friends and with his sons and with some of the people from the order. And... Um, I was just able to witness some really beautiful moments and I'm very, very grateful for that. And then the streets were packed with several hundred people out in the street um, and we did the funeral prayer uh, for Shems Baba. So Shems, S-H-E-M-S, Friedlander. If you get a chance, take a minute and and look him up. Look, There, there are interviews that you can see about his work and things like that and so I want to dedicate this episode of the Traveler's Podcast to Shem's Baba, to Shem's Friedlander. Uh, I want to talk today about a place that people hear about and it's referenced so much. You know, Mecca is a place that people talk about so much that sometimes people call it the Mecca. People would be like, oh, you went to the Mecca. And the reason that they say that is because anytime somebody wants to say that something is the center, that some city or some place is the center and the origin of some global phenomenon, they always say this is the Mecca of so-and-so. You know what I mean? It's a it's a metaphor. Like, this is the Mecca of... So New York is the Mecca of hip-hop. Or people will say, like, I'm in the Mecca of barbecue. You know what I'm saying? And, and then I'm not going to say the name of a city because places people fight over stuff like that. But, like, I'm in the Mecca of baseball cards or I'm in the Mecca of... Comic books, or I'm in the Mecca of so and so. People say that so much that they, oftentimes, that think that Mecca is called the Mecca, but we're talking about actual Mecca, which is the the birthplace of Islam, as we know it, and um, is one of the places that people seek to go from all over the world, and only Muslims are allowed to go there. And I wanted to sit down and just share some reflections about this really amazing place and about this really incredible experience because uh, after 12 years, you know, 12 years ago, I made my first journey. Uh, I went for the actual Hajj. Hajj is the the big communal, like, global mass pilgrimage to the city of Mecca and surrounding areas. And um, I did that 12 years ago in 2010. And I just recently, a few weeks ago, was able to visit again. I made the smaller pilgrimage, which is still a pilgrimage, and it's called Umrah. But Umrah is when you go, and it's 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 more of a small group or even an individual pilgrimage. And I actually did it as an individual. I actually this time went by myself. I spent a, a, a good amount of time studying uh, how to do these rituals on my own, how to lead myself and do these rituals. And so I was able to go. And I just I thought it would be a good opportunity because, I, honestly, when I was there, there are times when I thought about just pulling out my phone and recording some of the things that I was thinking and experiencing to share with the people that listen to this podcast. But I didn't want to do that. I didn't take photos this time when I was there. You may see there are photos of me from 2010, uh, with the first time that I went. Um, I was with a group of people, and a lot of us were taking photos, and I did that. But, you know, one of the things that I came across is that it just might not, now I don't know if if I feel good about doing that. And so I didn't take photos this time, and I probably won't when I go back, inshallah. But I wanted to share some reflections and some thoughts on a place that a lot of people are curious about and have heard about. But even a lot of Muslims in their lifetime will not get the opportunity to go. So this will be thoughts and reflections on what I'm going to call the return to Mecca or the return of the Mecca which was also the name of a Pete Rock and C.L. Smooth album. And a really dope book, Return of the Mecca by, by uh, my dear brother, Sohail Man, maybe we have him on the show. Be really dope to have him on. This episode of the Travelers Podcast is brought to you, as always, by the Zakat Foundation. And I'm going to do these at the beginning because I don't think I'm probably going to have the presence of mind once I start talking about these experiences to stop and do ad breaks, so I'm just gonna say them now. Zakat Foundation has been rocking with us from the very beginning, and it's a global humanitarian organization led by Muslims, but they do incredible work all over the world. Uh, I really highly encourage you, even if you're not Muslim, but just want to be associated, want to you know, give something to an organization that does incredible work wherever human beings are. You know, they don't only help Muslims, they don't use their work to proselytize or try to convert people. They're just helping people. And the way that they do it is really creative and really authentic and dope. If you get a chance, go back a couple episodes. We uh, interviewed our sister, the marketing and strategist, amazing kind of guru. Our sister, Amna Mirza, who works with Sakat Foundation, and she's the one that really made the connection between that amazing organization and this podcast. So on social media, you can follow them on Sakat US, and or you could go to their website, Sakat Foundation, Z-A-K-A-T Foundation.org, check out their work, and give something. It's like $5 to give somebody a hot meal um, in Ukraine, in Palestine, in, uh, you know, all over the world. And, um, you know, look at that. Also check out their Orphan Relief Program. $50 a month, you're sponsoring an orphan. And for that particular program, when you give $50, $50 goes to, directly to the orphans and the people that are around them. Check out Zakat Foundation. We're also brought to you and sponsored this week by BetterHelp online therapy platform. When you use our link to sign up with them, you get a 10% discount. And we also get a commission for connecting you that supports the work that we do here at the travelers podcast. And so better help is something I found out about through a podcast that I listened to. And because I live in Istanbul, Turkey, I, you know, I'm not, I don't have access to therapy, both because of the fact that most therapists are only licensed to, tr- to work with clients that are in their state. And then also, you know, just the type of insurance. I, I don't have the type in, of insurance as a self, employed person that really makes it affordable. So I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts. I heard about BetterHelp and I checked it out. You go to BetterHelp and you start out by doing a questionnaire and they ask you, what is it that's bringing you to therapy? This thing is really good because it also helps you, helps the customer, the client think about what is it that I'm here for, you know what I'm saying? And there's uh, no shortage of reasons that it would be good to talk to somebody and to just work through stuff with somebody. I couldn't recommend it more highly. So first you do that, then you talk about what kind of therapist you want, and they actually give you some options of people you can choose. You choose a therapist, then you get access to their calendar, and you go and schedule yourself an appointment whenever you want to do it. Then you decide, do you want to talk to them face-to-face? Do you want to talk over the phone? I like to do mine over the phone. Uh, Or you can... Just start by messaging them. And then you have access to start messaging them immediately. And from the first time that I sat with my therapist on BetterHelp, I, she gave me different ways of looking at things that were directly from my own words, from my own accounts. She was asking me, you know, what is it that you feel when this happens? And I'll explain it. She say, oh, okay, well then let's take what you just told me and think about it from another perspective and just work backwards. So if this is the way you feel when these relationships fail, then what does it say about what your expectations were when you went into these relationships? Oh, okay. And did you were you aware that that's what you were seeking? And did you communicate that to the other person? And it's like, man, no, I never thought about that. So it's really dope, really, really incredible. And I couldn't recommend it more highly. So go to BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R, help H E L P dot com slash travelers. That'll let you know that we sent you. You'll get a discount. We'll get a commission. And you'll get the chance to sit with a therapist that can really, really help with the with the experience we're having with ourselves. Couldn't recommend it more highly, betterhelp.com. So I could really spend a lot of time with a lot of like background and I just don't want to do that. I'm going to do that as little as possible. Like if you listen to the show, you know, or if you know me, you know, I love tangents. Like that's where the good stuff is. You know, I've, um, there are certain texts, for example, um, you know, great Islamic texts. And I've either been in person with teachers that go through these texts or like listen to their lectures and learning series about these texts, and it's like, man, you can just listen to them over and over and over again, these different teachers, because they're gonna go on different tangents and they're gonna give different supporting information and stories and things. It's like, even if I have this text memorized, I'm gonna get something new every time. You know, when sometimes a lot of people would tell a story that they've told before. And one of the etiquettes of Islam, of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is that if someone tells you a story they already told you before, he would listen again. And he wouldn't say like, oh, yeah, I already know that. I already know this one, you know. And from trying to practice that, you know, I will, I realize that, man, people add details each time that that weren't there before, different contexts. And, you know, there's a great hip-hop song that starts out. You love to hear the story again and again, how it all got started way back when. You know, hearing these stories over and over again is really good. And um, because of the tangents. So, but I'm gonna try to avoid these tangents. I basically discovered the city of Mecca as a place that I wanted to go 30 years ago. There was just the 30-year anniversary of the uh, making and release of the d- Spike Lee's movie, Malcolm X, that's based on uh, Alex Haley's uh, autobiography, that he, Alex Haley wrote an autobiography along with. So it's the autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley. And I was told to read this book by KRS-One in 1990 or 91, when I was 13 years old. KRS did a lecture tour, came through Michigan State University, I asked a question, I was 13 years old, went and saw him give a lecture, asked a question, he brought me on stage. Um, you know, I've told this story so many times, but that was the day that I really was, became very clear about who I am and what my life's purpose is when I was 13. It's a gift and it's also a big challenge. It can be a prison sometimes. There are a lot of people that still don't, that have no idea what they wanna do or who they wanna be or what their life's purpose is. I actually knew when I was younger than that. I knew when I was very young that I was going to be on stage speaking to people or at the front of a room speaking to a group of people, that they're going to be listening to me, I'm going to be connecting with them. I've had just feelings about this my whole life. But when I was 13, I saw my favorite rapper give a lecture, and I asked a question, he brought me on stage, asked me some questions, and signed the book that he had written for me. And he wrote To Jason, which is my birth name, Unite Humanity, KRS-One. And he also talked a lot about Malcolm X. I knew that Malcolm X was a really important figure. I heard his voice sampled in hip hop records. I heard Public Enemy talking about him. And I heard these references to Islam, to the Five Percenters, to the Nation of Islam, uh, to the Morris Science Temple to the Nawabian community of Dr. Malachi York in Brooklyn, you know, these early kind of references that we heard, when you hear people talk about ciphers and saying peace, even saying peace, uh, you know, these are all things that you hear. The Universal Zulu Nation, so much of their literature and language is based around uh, different types of black Islam in America. And so this was this was already in my consciousness. I was hearing Minister Farrakhan's voice. I was hearing Minister Khalid Abdul-Muhammad's voice. All these prominently featured in the, the songs that I love, and by bands and by artists and by rappers and DJs that I looked up to as more than just being artists, but also people who were telling me something and giving me a foundation of the type of person that I wanted to be. So when KRS-One said, you specifically should read the autobiography of Malcolm X, I went out and got it, and it took me a long time to read this book, because I'm partially blind, I'm albino, so trying to read a book takes a long time. And it took me years to get through the book, even though it's a quick, easy read, you know. I had never read a full, big book like that. I had never read a novel, I had never read an autobiography. I I read little glimpses and clips of things here and there. And I'd listen to some books on tape and stuff. But that's the first book that I read from cover to cover. But it did take me a long time. And I, you know, I I was a kid and I'm an artist. So I would read a chapter or two and get really enthralled with it. And then I'd put it down and I wouldn't come back to it for six months. But around this time, around Thanksgiving, 30 years ago, 1992, I was 15 years old. I was living in Minneapolis and me and my younger brother had... Uh, a family that was, like, really great friends with us because they also had two boys our age, uh, S- Scooter and Boss. <laughs> shout-out to Scooter and Boss. So uh, Scooter was my age and Boss was my bro- my younger brother's age, four years apart. They also had a younger sister, Patrice. Shout-out to Patrice. And shout-out to Kim Cooper, who... Uh, Started listening to my podcast, the old friend from high school. Shout out to all the homies from Leroy and D-Roy and Shadell and Tone Mitch and everybody, everybody, all my friends from high school. Um, but man, uh, Scooter and Boss came to Madison with us from Minneapolis, which is where my grandmother lived. That's where I was born. And we went back there for Thanksgiving and we uh, decided to go see Malcolm X, the movie. And we went to this old school theater. I want to say it maybe on State Street in Madison, and we saw the movie. And it was another one of those events that absolutely changed my life. Like I am the person 30 years later sitting here, living in Turkey, (laughs) you know, with a career of doing this and being arrested and profiled by the, you know, by security agencies and now having been to Mecca and, been to Iran and been to Lebanon and been to West Africa and South Africa and and East Africa and having been to, you know, Cairo and Malaysia and all these Muslim countries all over the world, you know, learning from great teachers and having these experiences and having met the daughters of Malcolm X. And uh, actually, the first time I just remembered this—the first time I was in Mecca—Malcolm's grandson, that they called Young Malcolm, was actually there that year. I made Hajj the same year that he did, and we saw him, and and we were with him. And um, he was actually—he was actually killed in Mexico a couple years after that. And it's a really, you know, difficult, challenging story. That Young Malcolm, when he was a young man, actually set a fire. Um, when he was being looked after by his grandmother, Dr. Betty Shabazz, Malcolm's wife, and that fire actually took her life. It's just you know that I've been around that family. If you watch the if you watch the video called Good Lord, go watch my video called Good Lord. Uh, you'll see a lot of amazing people in that video. Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah, who's my primary spiritual kind of counselor, uh, you'll see Ali Shahi Muhammad uh, from tribe called Quest. You'll see Popmaster Master Fable. You'll see. Um, a lot of incredible people, the reminders, and it's a lot of really amazing people. Dr. Suad Abdul-Khabir, the scholar that writes about hip-hop and Islam and blackness, and you see all these incredible people. And also you see Daughters of Malcolm X, uh, and that was filmed at the Audubon Ballroom where Malcolm was murdered, where he was martyred, where he was assassinated. So that movie and that book absolutely changed my life. I went and saw the movie and similar to reading the book, I had this feeling like this is the most truthful person that I have ever experienced. Everything that he said, including about white people, it didn't make me feel threatened or, or disrespected or afraid or nervous. It just rang true. Every word rang true to me. and. When he joined the Nation of Islam, I watched that transformation in the movie and read about it in the book, and I just said, I want to be whatever he is. I don't think I'm allowed to be what he is, but I'm going to strive and from the, I'm going to try to be my version of whatever this man is. So I wanted to try to live like him. I wanted to try to be educated like him and be disciplined and be principled like him. And then at the end of his life, he, he was in the organization, the Nation of Islam, that was started in 19, early 1930s in Detroit um, by Elijah and Clara Muhammad and was uh, you know carried on lives on to this day. And he was a, a member of that organization and gave his life to it and then had disagreements and was uh, somewhat disillusioned uh, by the, some of the, the experiences that he had. He left the community. and he became a Sunni Orthodox. Muslim and he goes to Mecca and in Mecca he sees people from all over the world, on the, he makes the Hajj and he sees people from all over the world and he sees people that would in America would be called white but he said these people aren't white, they just don't have that energy, they don't have that air, they don't have that posture, said so these are human beings And the blondness of their hair, the lightness of their skin, their features, the blueness of their eyes is just almost like an accidental reality. It's just one of the descriptive features of them, but it has nothing to do with their souls. And he came back and he said, I I slept on the ground with and drank out of the same cup and ate from the same plate and prayed next to people who would be called white. And we were all brothers, but they weren't white to me. And he said, if the white man, the person in America, if the man in America who calls himself white, would study the religion of Islam and would become Muslims, it would allow it would be a rehumanizing process for them. You know, he said this: these concepts are dehumanizing. The concept of whiteness, the nation of Islam says that the white man is the devil. And what Malcolm came to believe is that. European American people aren't biologically devils, and he certainly wasn't talking about individuals. But the concept of whiteness is a demonic concept. It's an evil concept. It's a dehuman, it's an anti-human concept. This idea that really doesn't mean anything other than I'm supposed to be superior to other people, just based on the body that I'm born into, that these bodies are the standard by which everyone else will be judged. And... Uh, this concept actually, when you look in the Quran, Iblis is the the being who worships God, uh, who worships Allah before the human beings are created. and when the hu- and, and he's created from fire. And when the human beings are created uh, from dirt, from clay, from mud, from the, the, the earth, uh, the Creator uh, orders all of creation to bow to the human being. And they all do it, except for Iblis, because Iblis says, I'm better than him. In Arabic, the words are Enna minhu. First of all, this is the first being, the first created being that ever says the word I, especially to the creator, Enna, I, me. Enna minhu, I'm better than him, because I'm created from fire and he's created from mud. So this idea that I'm superior just based on my physical being and my makeup, I'm better than somebody else, is what changes. Then Iblis starts to be referred to as shaitan, as the devil. And shaitan isn't the enemy of God in Islam. Shaitan is the enemy of the human being, who because the human being is created in the Quranic narrative uh, to be uh, the representative of God, to be the vicegerent of God. To be the the representative of the Creator, who has the ability to make decisions for themselves, and the angels actually ask the question, "Okay, so you're making, you're creating this being, who can make decisions for themselves and who has agency and who has uh, what Christians later called free will? Does this mean that that aren't they going to shed blood?" Aren't they going to cause all type of mischief on the earth? And our scholars say that all of the evil that human beings have ever done is in that question. So the slave trade and genocide and rape and murder and theft and every evil thing that human beings have done to each other is all in that question. And the answer is, I know what you don't know. So Iblis comes along, Shaitan comes along, the angels just ask the question, but the, and the creator is saying, I don't. I know things that you don't know about them. And that's this deep mystery of life, is like, why do human beings do so much evil to each other? And why are we forced to experience these things? Why does that seem to be part of this life? And it's a major theological question. But Iblis, Shaitan, the devil is the one that says, they're not what you say they are. They're just low. They're just animals. They're just the worst of the worst. They ha- he has the lowest opinion of the human being, of the human potential, and believes the worst. And so the believer is the one who believes that the human being is extremely valuable, the most beloved thing to God, and that the human potential is to be uh, beautiful and to be whole and and to be pure and to be wise and to be good doesn't mean that we don't have mistakes because that's also part of our human makeup. It's part of that mysterious kind of tension that we carry through life of having these big desires and these big aspirations and these big spiritual states that we want to attain, having these spiritual aspirations that, like, I have the audacity to say I want to be all the way good. I'm not that. I'm not there. But I'm not going to aim any lower than that. I'm going to aim at I want to be a completely virtuous person. Uh, and And the fact that we slip and we make mistakes are part of our relationship with the divine, because that's what actually causes us to shatter our sleepwalking and come back to say like, oh, I need help. I have blind spots. I have, you know, I, I'm getting I'm getting away from myself and I need to come back. And that's part of the spiritual path. That's part of the spiritual journey. So what Malcolm says is that the human being is a human being. The human person is, is created on a natural, what's called in Islam, fitrah. F-I-T-R-A, fitra, meaning that the human being is created on a certain foundational, or a natural foundation. There's a natural state that a human being has. And what we believe about Islam is that it's din al-fitra, the, the way of life, the state of being, the moral code, the belief system, the, the process of spiritual purification, the growth of a human person and vessel into uh, realizing the potential that's in our nature. We believe that this is us coming back to our nature. And so that's what this whole affair is about. And so Malcolm came back from Hajj and said, if the person in America who has been taught, you know, Malcolm in the Nation of Islam, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad used to say the so-called Negro, like you were something before this system came along and labeled you that and what malcolm came back and said and what people like shem's baba shem's friedlander and others realized and came to in the 60s and 70s around that time was like just because somebody says i'm white what is that actually what like who said like did the creator call me that is that what is that the way i have to see myself and so malcolm said this would introduce any human being back into the human family again. It would be a rehumanizing process. And so many of us, when we heard that statement or when we read that, when I read it and when I saw it in the movie, in, the, in, in Malcolm X, the Spike Lee movie X, I just, just, I just knew it. Like I'm a Muslim. The rest of my life I'll be a Muslim, you know? And then I was on a journey to try to figure out how to do it. And it was really funny and crazy and I, this mixture of all this kind of stuff. And so, uh, it actually from Thanksgiving was the day that I was like, "I'm a Muslim." Uh, the day that I actually officially became a Muslim and said my shahada, "Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, Ashhadu anna Muhammadur Rasulullah." I witnessed that the Creator, the Divine, is one. There's one universal Creator. There's not gods. There's not all these different gods. Well, is it your god or is it my god? Well, my god hates your god. I'm sorry, you're not talking about the Islamic tradition. All human beings inherently, and by the nature of our creation, are relating to the divine reality. All of us are. We we have questions and we have different types of relationships, but we all have that right. That's, that's the purpose of our being, is to relate to the source of it all. And we all have some relationship with that. And so... And, and then also we say Muhammad, Ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. We believe that the Muhammad, that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, and we believe that Muhammad is the person who represents of all of the messengers and all of the reminders and all the great knowledge people and 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 reminders that have been in every group of people, every single group of people has had reminders, have had messengers, have had prophets, have had sages, have had wise ones, have had griots that carry this knowledge and that give it to others, healers wise ones, elders that carry this knowledge and give it to people, and they all spoke their people's tongue. And sometimes that culturally those things look different and feel different, but they're all pointing back to the one. And that there are people that are spiritually realized. And that the, we believe that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is the the leader of them all. But by saying, by witnessing that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, Muhammad Rasulullah, Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, present peace be upon him. We, we're saying and we're acknowledging that this person also is the head of this body of people. And so I said that statement and officially became a Muslim. I decided to become a Muslim. I just, just declared myself a Muslim to myself, excuse me, on Thanksgiving. When it actually became official, I didn't realize it at the time. I wasn't thinking about that. I went back and looked, at, looked up the date, and it actually was Valentine's Day, 1993. So come this Valentine's Day will be my 30th anniversary of me saying my Shahada. Some American Westerners call it a anniversary. And from that time, my goal, like the thing that made me know that I could be a Muslim was Malcolm going on hajj. And so you read about and you see his hajj. And so from that day forward, I had a picture of the Ka'aba in Mecca. The Ka'aba is the black box in the city of Mecca, a a cube. And it's not that big, you know, and it's very, very simple. It's a cube that's built out of bricks. Uh, In the corner is a black stone that's held in a silver... mm, Holder like a like a case that holds it in place, it's the cornerstone, and you see people. It's, it has a black and gold cover over it that's changed, I believe, every year. That cover that kiswa uh, shrouds it, and so you see people come from all over the world, and they walk circles around the Kaaba. They, they, that's what we do when we make pilgrimage. We walk around the Kaaba together, dressed usually in white. Uh, And, you know, also all of the Muslims all over the world, a billion and a half people every day, five times a day, or whenever we get around to praying, like (laughs) different relationships we all have with prayer. But five times a day, people all over the world are facing in that direction uh, for their prayer. And we don't worship that box, but it's a sign, it's a symbol. The city of Mecca and the Kaaba itself actually exist because of a gift that was given to a woman. And many of our teachers say that she was actually a black woman, Uh, a woman named Hagar or Hajar, who was the uh, wife of the prophet Abraham. In Islam, we don't believe that she was a handmaiden or a mistress or something like that. We believe that she was his wife. Abraham had a child he had uh, two children, with Sarah and with Hajar, with Hagar. With Sarah, he had Isaac, Ishaq. With Hajar, he had the son, Ismail. Uh, prayers be upon them all. Prayers and peace be upon them all. These are prophets in our eyes. These are, and, and Abraham especially, is a founding prophet in our eyes. So is Moses. So is Jesus. Uh, we love Jesus' as mother. We, we regard Jesus' as mother to be a perfect human being, Miriam. Mary, we regard her to be a perfect human being. And we love all of these people. These are very, very important people to us. And when people disrespect them, we actually feel disrespected too. I think sometimes people have feelings towards the Catholic Church or whatever, and so they diss Jesus or they mock Jesus. I saw somebody I know that dressed up as Jesus for Halloween, and it hurt my feelings. I know they didn't mean to, and I'm not mad at the person, but like, I love Jesus, you know what I mean? And I love anybody that loves Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just because of my love for Jesus. So the city of Mecca exists because this uh woman, uh Hajar, Hagar, was was sent out uh into the desert with Ismael, with Ishmael, and left there to just trust in God, to trust in the Creator. And there are two mountains or or kind of like small hills that are still there and we still our, our rituals there are based around this. She was walking back and forth between, and, and jogging back and forth between these two hills because she was trying to get up on a high place to find water and to find life or to find some way that she could sustain her baby because she's out there with her baby. And the creator gifted her with a well called Zamzam. And this well flows to this day and literally millions of people travel all year round from all over the world and it's enough water to share with everybody it's a miraculous well in the middle of the desert and that what, the existence of that well and then abraham came back and abraham and ishmael built the kaaba that you see there now so those in mecca those are the three sites that we're going to the kaaba and the again the cornerstone of the kaaba is the black stone so we have the kaaba that's the first uh the first house of worship built and uh in this lineage and then also the well of Zamzam and the two hills of Safa and Marwa, this is where these rituals are done especially when we do uh the the smaller pilgrimage but even the 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 big communal pilgrimage this is where these rituals are done and so this entire city exists because of the gifts that were given to this woman and Zamzam and when we go, where we, we trace her steps. So one of the one of the most important rituals is to walk and jog uh, briskly in between these two mountains and to drink from the well of Zamzam. And so one of the amazing things that we see is that people the, the, the just the confluence, the coming together of people's spiritual aspirations, their desires, their love, the, the entire spiritual journey that's symbolized in that prayer that we all, that the Muslims do five times a day, where we stand up before the sun rises and we wash our bodies and we stand and we recite the Quran in Arabic and we try to recite it beautifully if we can and we bow and we prostrate, we put our faces on the floor, in all in that direction. And we're all doing essentially the same prayer. It's, it's it's essentially the same for all of the Muslims. There are, there are minor differences, but any Muslim can pray next to any other Muslim. So, you know, somebody who is, um, you know, a Sunni or a Shiite or a Maliki or a Hanbali or a Hanafi or a Salafi or a uh, Naqshbandi or a Diyobandi, any of these different... Um, expressions of Islam, whether a person's from Pakistan or China or, uh, you know, Southern Spain and Portugal, or whether a person is from Minnesota or wherever we're from, we can see each other. And the second we see each other, we recognize each other. And it's like, you see somebody, you could be at a truck stop I've been all over the world and done this and see an Eastern European person or African person. I see the way that they're washing their hands and their arms and their face. It's like, oh, he's getting ready to pray. And we don't even speak any of the same language. We fall right in and pray next to each other. And then we hug each other and keep it moving. It is one of the most beautiful humani- humanizing experiences that a person can have. I'm gonna cry, but I'm good. So I, from the day that I decided this, I've had a picture of the Kaaba in my home. And there are times when I traveled uh, on tour where I would have a picture of the Kaaba in my suitcase. And then when I didn't have, you know, and I kept a picture of it. So much so that when my family moved out of our house in Minnesota to to come and live in Istanbul, I had this one particular, from the the time we moved into our house in Minneapolis, uh, I hung up this picture of the Kaaba in Mecca. And my four-year-old daughter, she's four now, but she was like two and a half at that time. And she's most my probably my most religious baby of all my kids. <laughs> and um she feels very, very connected to the Kaaba. And she said, you know, the Muslims make salat, Daddy. I'm like, yeah, you know, we're all praying in that direction. And she that was just always in her house. And it was a two year and two and a half year old baby. And when we she asked me every day, Daddy, the Muslims make salat, the Kaaba? Yes. Yeah, baby, that's right. And someday you're going to go there, inshallah. And so when we were moving out, one of the last things we did was take our pictures off the wall. And she lost it. When we took that picture down, no, don't, daddy. The Muslims got to make salat, daddy. It's like the Muslims are still going to make salat. It's not about this picture, you know. It's not the picture. But I've always had this this picture up in my home. And I tried to make hajj a few times, but it just felt like such a distant a distant thing. And I was at a particular time in my life where I was at a spiritual low. Uh, In 2010, my father died of suicide. Uh, My father actually died on the 4th of July, and I was traveling in Europe. And that year in particular, 2010, in some outward ways, maybe that was the height of my career. I mean, I played at Glastonbury, and I played at Coachella, and I did Rock the Bells, and I did um, you know, all of these big festivals and toured all over the world. And, you know, that was when I was in very close proximity and, uh, to, to a lot of the people that I know, or just even being around Jay-Z and Beyonce and, you know, all of these people. In a lot of ways, that was outwardly the height of my career. But I was gone on tour for 10 months out of the 12 months out of that year. Very very difficult. I made it. I made a song called "Stop the Press" that was about that about this year, about 2010, came out on my album called "Morning in America." And also that year, our dear beloved brother Idea died, a person that we came up with and loved really really dearly. It's like when the most special person, kind of like the heart and soul of your crew, of your team, of your, you know, of your association that person dies really unexpectedly. And it was very difficult. Also, me being gone so much, me and my wife were really struggling. Um, My spiritual teacher, the leader of the community that I first entered in was Imam Warathuddin Muhammad. Allah, have mercy on him. He was the son of Elijah Muhammad, who was the, the leader of the Nation of Islam. Elijah Muhammad did not found the Nation of Islam. He didn't start it. He didn't invent that theology or that way of understanding things or doing things. But he was put in charge. He was made the leader. And he was the leader from the early 1930s until he died in 1975. In 1975, his son became the leader of the organization, Imam Warithuddin Muhammad, Wallace Muhammad, W. Dean Muhammad became the leader. And he was aware that the Nation of Islam's theology and the language of what they believe and even some of their practices are not the same as the traditional religion of Islam. There's a lot of difference here. And I say this with all due respect to the Nation of Islam because that is both the community that birthed, that's the experience that birthed my community. I'm a Muslim because of that community, and also my dear friends are still in uh, that understanding and in that practice, and it has evolved and it has it's uh, it's grown in time. So I- I- Imam Worthy Muhammad Wd Muhammad became the leader of that organization, that community, and uh, around half a million people, or se- many hun- several hundred thousand people, made a transition into traditional orthodox. Islam, as it's understood around the world. Um, Minister Farrakhan initially made that transition with Wallace Muhammad, but then um, he wasn't pleased with it. And there were a number of people in that community that weren't pleased with these changes. And so they wanted to reinstitute the Nation of Islam, and he did that. And there was a, a party of the people that that did that. And so there were kind of like two communities or two groups that came out of the Nation of Islam. Minister Farrakhan's more, more um, the one that was more in line with the way that that community had been from 1930 to 1975. And then there was the community of Imam Warthi Muhammad that was still very culturally and socially black, American. Uh, but the practices and the theologies were in line with Sunni traditional Islam. And so those communities were, you know, in some ways they were at odds, you know, they were they, they definitely had different views and visions and understandings, but I was in the community of Imam Warithuddin Muhammad in 2007 or 8 I want to say, um Minister Farrakhan Khan and Imam Warithuddin Muhammad reunited those two communities, which for my generation was a really beautiful news to us because our parents generation went through that split. My generation that, that that came up in the 90s, we didn't go through that split. You know, we love the Nation of Islam, we love the five percenters, we love, and yeah, we have theological debates and stuff like that. And there were people that, you know, sometimes didn't have the grip. But for the most part, we loved each other and we understood each other to be part of the same family and same lineage and heritage. So then in 2009, I want to say, uh, Imam Waratim Muhammad, or maybe 2008, passed away. And I was just, by 2010, was at just a real spiritual low point. And I was really struggling. And I talked to my dear brother, Amir Suleiman, about it. And he said, you have to make hajj. This is the time. You've got the money. You're creating your own schedule. Um, you know, hajj is actually in, in the winter time, And it actually was around... Thanksgiving time, I want to say, um, or maybe right before, but he said, you know, this is a good time to go, and you have to go. You just have to. And he said, the group that you should go with is called Hajj Pros. When you you make Hajj, there's millions of people there, and you go with a group. Um, And the group that I went with was a group out of Atlanta called Hajj Pros, and I I could not recommend them more highly. Uh, It's a husband and wife, Both of them, uh, the wife I've known, Shahida Sharif, I met her in 1997 or 8, maybe. Maybe 1996, the mid-90s. I went with a group from Imam Warthi Muhammad's community of college students to Malaysia. My first time ever visiting a Muslim country, and I went with this group of young black, mostly college students, and uh, she was on that trip. And her husband was on, I think, the trip the year later. And then Imam Warithi Muhammad sent a bunch of his students, a group of his students, to go study uh, in Syria. And they were both chosen to go and study. And that's I believe that's where they met and married. And so uh, I- Imam uh, Suleiman Hamid, who's a really, really dear, beloved friend of mine and brother of mine, he's actually the imam of the Atlanta Masjid of Al-Islam and um, his wife, Shahida Sharif, they have a a group together uh, that leads people on Hajj, and they've been doing it for a long time. They've been doing it for like 15 years since they were very young. So this is like a young black entrepreneurial family that speaks Arabic well enough to get things done and argue with people and make it happen. And all of the logistics of leading a group of Americans into this enormous lifetime journey. And so I'm, I'm forever indebted to them and to Amir Suleiman. And the day that I left for Hajj in 2010 was actually the day after uh, Idea's funeral. So we went to his funeral and, and, you know, mourned him and said goodbye to him. And the next day I got up and headed out for Hajj. And it was really big to me because, you know, we flew first to New York. And uh, we all met at JFK Airport in New York, and then we, uh, you know, that's where you meet up with the group. And right when I walked up to the group, I saw an elder brother of ours named Khalil Shaheed. I've spoken about him before, but Khalil Shaheed was a jazz musician, trumpet player. He grew up in Chicago, and he played at the, the, the famous theater, the State Theater in Chicago, which was like Chicago's version of the Apollo. They had a built-in band, and so everybody came through this theater. And, you know, if you wanted, you could hire out their string section and their horn section. And Khalil was the understudy of one of the brothers in the horn section, and so sometimes he would be asked to sit in. So from the time he was really young, he played with Stevie Wonder and Donny Hathaway and all of these amazing people. And then he played with a brother named Buddy Miles, who was a drummer, who was also the leader of his band. And when Jimi Hendrix decided that he wanted to switch to having an all-black band, he hired Buddy Miles. So that means that Khalil actually played with Jimi Hendrix. Really amazing life that he lived. Uh, he settled in the Bay Area when he became Muslim and founded a group called Oaktown Jazz to teach jazz and did a lot of joints at Yoshi's in, in, the Bay, in the Oakland and things like that. Really amazing brother. He was on Hajj because of the fact that he wasn't old, he was like in his 60s, but he had cancer. And so somebody in the community actually, uh, I think, gifted him this package for him to go on Hodge. So as soon as we saw each other in New York, <laughs> it was, he was just like, my man. He's like, I got my roommate. And we were inseparable during the time that we were on Hodge. And, um, you know, Khalil had been, he had started taking medication for the cancer and it was affecting his memory. And like I said, he was a sharp, sharp, sharp brother, and he hadn't experienced memory loss before. So it was just a really beautiful experience that we had, you know, um, mm-hmm. being there with him and him really contemplating if if this may be the last chapter of his life, and it turned out that it was. I think he maybe died a year or so later. and. um you know, we just had that experience together. And when you hear more about what the experience was, maybe it'll it'll sink in more, but so so much of, of Hajj and, and Mecca and the Kaaba and Medina and the these type of experiences, Khalil is really woven into that. And it's very deep because Khalil actually means friend. You know, and um Khalil, it comes from the Arabic word khal, which is the, similar to the word for vinegar. And all these different pieces and ingredients go into making vinegar, and they congeal together over that process to the point where you can't tell where one of them starts and the other one ends. And so to be a khalil is a certain one of the many words for friends, but it means that we're so close that there's no really difference between us, you know. And so we, we really were known on that trip and it was about two and a half or three weeks that we were together having these really life-altering experiences. Um, you know, and, and it was a really beautiful time together. Uh, and like I said, we lost them not long after that. So we left from New York and we flew to uh, Cairo. In Cairo, we actually got into our, what they call ihram, which is a state and it's also a dress. So the state of ihram means that you go and you take a shower and you don't put on anything that that has any scent. So you don't wear deodorant, you don't have soap, you don't wear scented oils, you don't have any of that stuff. You take a shower with pure water and if you uh, use any products or anything like that, nothing can have any scent to it. And women can wear whatever they like, but men... Stripped down basically to just two white cloths, and when I just saw Shem's Baba uh, when he was being buried, they they actually rewrapped his cloth, and I was able to be in the room. I uh, was blessed, to, gifted to be in the room when they did that, and so these are the same two cloths that Muslims are buried in. You know, we don't we don't get embalmed. Uh, we're our, we're washed. Our bodies are washed, and then we're buried, and. Um, so you get into these two white garments. It's, it's basically like a really big bath towel. One of them you wrap around your lower half, your waist, and you tuck it in like a bath towel and then you roll it like a belt. Um, but you're not wearing any clothes other than that. So, you it, you know, it's not, you don't have underwear on, you don't have socks, you don't have, you got sandals. Uh, the sandals have to be showing most of your foot has to actually be out. So you've got sandals and this this one uh, kind of bath towel around your lower half, and then the other one, you wrap it around your top half, and that's it. You don't have any other clothes on other than that. You can't wear a watch or jewelry, um, you know, so there's nothing to really show your status. You can carry a bag, um, uh, you know, but nothing can be wrapped around you, no stitched garments, no, uh, you know, nothing beyond that. Uh, even your ihram, you can't put it over your head. Your head is uncovered. And so everybody at Hajj, people that come from all over the world, it's just a trip to be in public like that. Because imagine how you feel when you get out of the shower if you wrap a towel around you. Like you're in public like that for like a week at a time, doing these really physically challenging, uh, you know, ceremonies. These like sacred... Uh, rituals that you're doing with your physical body in the hot burning sun and the heat and it's the natural smell of your body and during that time you can you can take a shower but you can't really get in and scrub and you can't use any products and stuff like that so it's your natural smell of your body and when you're around when, when you have the gift of actually washing people when they've passed away it's a very similar smell the smell from hajj of being around all of these bodies. And a lot of times you're in really cramped quarters. So when you go around the Kaaba, especially on the Hajj, when there's millions of people, I'm not exaggerating when I say there's three to five million human beings, all in these tiny cramped quarters doing the same thing at the same time, all trying to do the same sacred rituals at the same time. And I mean, people are just literally on top of each other, just these like this sea of humanity. People from every country on earth, every corner of the earth is there on Hajj. And this was all predicted by the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, when he had a handful of followers. And most of them were from Arabia, you know, and he had like a few Africans, he had a few Europeans, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? He had a couple Persians, a couple, you know. But for the most part, he just had a small handful of followers. And it was predicted that people announced the Hajj to them. And you'll see that... You'll see people coming from every corner of the world and they'll be coming on every means of transportation, even people riding camels. And I mean, there are people that walk to Hajj from Africa. It's a two-year thing that they start walking from like West Africa to walk all the way across North Africa to go into the the peninsula, the Arabian Peninsula, to make Hajj. They're just directly across the water from East Africa, right above Yemen. And there are people that walk there and you see families that have, have like walked. And all of these people together And the men especially are dressed exactly the same. You're stripped down so that there's no sign of what culture you are. There's no sign of what tribe you're from. There's no outward sign. You literally are just all of these different presentations of just a human body. Like you're just stripped down to your body. And all of your bodies are smashed in together. The men and the women, there's no way to separate people you're praying next to each other you're on top of each other people are smashed into each other this like literal sea of humanity and people are all on top of each other sharing this experience and there's every type of disposition people speaking every type of language you know there there are people that are exacerbated there are people that you know might get hurt there are people that are you know, it, it looks like they're floating, like they're covered in light. You know, there are people that are angry. There are people that are guiding others, helping others. Um, this is really incredibly profound experience. Uh, the other restaurants have an hour in the morning and an hour at night where the food is just free. No questions asked. Just in the way of God. You know, and you'll see people go and get these like boxes of food, like maybe a box from almost something the equivalent of like a a fast food place. And they'll carry it back and they'll sit down and four people will get around one value menu and eat together, like share one meal. And there's a portion of the time when you're sleeping outdoors, like you sleep out under the stars, you know, with a group of people because you're in this place called Muzdelifa outside and you're collecting stones. You know, everyone is going around the Kaaba, everyone drinks from the well of Zamzam, everyone runs on those two jogs, on those two mountains, Safa and Marwa, where Hajar and and Ismail were looking for water. You pray in the place where Abraham stood, there's a marker there that shows where he stood. You try, if you can, to touch the black stone or even to kiss the black stone, with millions of other people all doing the same thing. And everywhere you look, there's just human bodies, Human hearts, human souls, human minds, you know, ha- all engaged in this experience at the same time. And it feels like all of humanity is there. You sleep in uh, outside in Musdalipha and you collect stones to throw. You go to another city called Minna where they have these three stone pillars that symbolize the internal struggle against uh, the evil that that we have to struggle against. So you throw stones at these for a couple of days. And during that time you sleep in tents and you're still all this whole time, you're wearing these two garments with no drawers on and no cologne and no rudimentary oil and no, you know, nothing. This, this is just, you're, you're there in your human vessel in basically your death shroud. You're basically wearing a death shroud with all of these other human beings. And when I first arrived in Mecca, you know, they say that the the way that you feel, they said, you know, we're going to go to the hotel first. We're not going to the Kaaba immediately. We're going to go to the hotel, get a little rest. It was a really long travel experience to get there. I had to get a note saying that I was Muslim uh, because my first name is Ali, but my middle name and my last name are not Muslim names. And, you know, this, like, is this person really Muslim? You have to be Muslim to enter into the precincts uh, in Mecca and in Medina where the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is buried and where his mosque is and his home is and his wife is buried and his companions are buried. And so, you know, I I needed a letter. And so the people in in Minneapolis provided a letter showing that I was Muslim. And um, so you have to be processed and, and checked in. And it's just a very, very long experience of travel so the leader of our group imam sulaiman hamid said we're going to we're going to rest we're not going straight to the kaaba we're going to go to the hotel and rest and then we're going to go together because the state that you're in when you first see the kaaba is important but there was a an experienced brother among us that had been many many times and he said um i don't know about y'all but i'm when i get there i'm going straight to the kaaba cuz i want to see it and i said i'm going with you and I told her I was in this real spiritually low place. And my prayer when I left, when I got on the plane, is like, I'm not feeling it. There was a time in my life prior to that, just a few years prior. Like, I was one of the imams of the mosque that I, in Minneapolis. I helped to build the mosque there, and I gave the first sermons there. And I helped a lot of people convert to Islam. And I was there, and I read the Quran for them when they converted or when they had children or when they died or when I facilitated people's marriages and did counseling and I taught Arabic and I taught kids. And I was one of the main people at the mosque that that others were leaning on for strength and guidance and instruction. Even from the time I was 15 years old, I worked full time for the mosque when I was 18, 19, 20. <laughs> I got fired for coming into work late too much because I'm still an artist, you know what I'm saying? But that was my role and like the people in that community that's what they knew me for and at this p- place in my life in 2010 that I had been touring since 2002 you know my my the leader of my community passed away you know i had these deaths around me i was really struggling like it was very very challenging and my prayer when i got on the plane to go to mecca was like allah i need if the, i need you to to give me this experience because it it I'm not feeling it. And so I went there and we went. I I, you know, I broke rank and I went with another one of the brothers. And I walked in to the to the Kaaba and I saw it. And like, there it is. It's been on my wall, hanging for 10 years at this point. And I didn't feel anything at all. And I was really being cruel to myself. I really was like, man. You've been out here doing all these rap tours, thinking you're this and that, and you lost the best, the you lost the best part of who you are. Like if you lose, you know, there's this, there's a state, there's this uh, statement, and I don't know who said it originally, but it says, Ya Rab, Ya Allah. Uh what is the person lost that gains you? And what is the person gained that loses you? Like, you lose the source. You lose connection with the meaning of life, the source of the meaning of it all. Like, what do you gain if you lose that? And you haven't lost anything if you gain that. So I'm thinking, like, man, I did it. Like, I broke my own heart. I've traveled too much. My dad died. My friend died. Me and my wife are struggling. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't, you know, who? regardless of what the situation is, if your father dies of suicide and then your your friend dies of you know, consuming a narcotic—like who knows what the what actually happened there. But he died of too much opioids in his blood. And it's like, man, did I fail my father? Did I fail my friend? What's going on with me and my wife? I'm away from—I got children. I'm away from my kids. I'm on these stages. I'm—you know—I'm at Rock the Bells with with Beyonce and Jay Z and what. But like, if I lose this, what then? What is it all for? Like, did I actually destroy myself? by doing this, which is like what people warned me about, I really felt that might be the lowest feeling that I've ever had. And I've had some low times, but like, man, that that was a really horrible feeling. And so I snuck back and I was like, okay, I'm gonna go back to the hotel. I'll go with the group, do over. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And we walked over there as a group and there was a sister there from the Bay Area. A lot of the people there are from the Bay Area. And the baby became a really important part of my spiritual journey and community. And this sister, you know, her name is Jaleah Gordon, and um, she was there with her husband. And her husband is the homie. And you know, but we were young. I was in my thirties. I think they're younger than me. So they might be in their late twenties or something. But they were newly married, and he was a convert like me. And uh, he used to work with the Jacka. May the Jaka rest in peace, Allah, have mercy on the Jaka, really prominent, well-known, beloved Muslim uh, brother from the Bay that, a legend in the Bay. And um, so, you know, I, I happened to be very close near her, like when our group was walking in. And so I looked at her when she saw the Kaaba for the first time. And I just saw these, like, uncontrollable tears just fall out of her eyes because she had been raised a Muslim. Her mother was Muslim. I think her grandmother's Muslim, if I'm not mistaken. But she was raised Muslim all her life and African-American sister. And I just saw her response, and I said, that's a believer. Like, that's somebody whose heart is connected. That's what you're supposed to feel, you know. And so we went through those first couple days, and I, by myself, would get up in the middle of the night and go over there because, you know, I'm albino, so I'm the sun is really difficult for my eyes and skin. So I would go there in the middle of the night and I would just sit by myself and just like, what's wrong with me? And one of the days I was waiting for the morning prayer to come in and I had my eyes closed and I was just reflecting. And the thing that did it for me was that I realized I was just thinking about all the things I've ever prayed for. And I'm not a person, especially at that time, that prayed for like detailed things. Even though I know that that it's it's good to pray for everything. There's you know, there's nothing too small to pray for. But I did, hadn't prayed for small things at that time. But I prayed all my life that I wanted to make music and I wanted to be able to do that for a living, and I wanted to be able to share my message and have people listen to it and have it matter. Like I wanted to have a message the way that KRS did. When I saw him when I was 13 years old, I wanted to affect him. To I wanted to be of use the way he was. Like I looked at KRS-One and Chuck D and Rakim and all these people, and like I want to be a good person and I want to be of benefit to the world. And I wanted to tell my truth and have it benefit people the way that they did. I want to give what was given to them and what was what they gave me. I want to give that to others along with i want to be yeah i want to be the dude on stage too you know and i want to be respected by my peers and all that stuff all of that was in that prayer you know and i wanted to be i wanted to have love you know i was married for 10 years i married the the basically the you know a muslim girl in our community and you know i just got married when i was 17 years old and i was married to, to her for almost 9 years or for almost 10 years for over 9 years And it was a really rough marriage. It was rough. And it was difficult when we had a son, you know. And I prayed, like, I want to be in love. Like, I really want to love somebody that really loves me. And it's okay for it to be difficult. It's okay. And, you know, me and my wife, I've been married now for 19 years with my current wife. And that's, we love the hell out of each other. And it is really hard sometimes. We are very, we've hurt the hell out of each other, but we really just deeply want it to work so bad that, like, no matter what we've faced so far, and, may I make that always be the case. But we've been through a lot. We've been through a lot. I have really embarrassed myself in front of that woman, and we love each other. And she probably feels the same way. I know she does. But it's, you know. And then, you know, I had a son, and I always wanted a son. But I also really wanted a daughter, and I asked God very directly for a daughter. And, you know, and I just thought about my daughter. And I, I now have three daughters, but at that time I had my eldest daughter. And I just thought about her, you know, and... Anybody that knows her knows that she's just the coolest person in the world. Like she's just so, like even when she was little, when she was a baby, like when she was a toddler, it's ter- we supposed to be terrible twos. She would go to bed and me and my wife would be sitting there watching TV something or something or watching a movie or something. And we'd be like, hey, am I crazy if I feel like waking the baby up because I just want to hang out with her? Like we would be done with the day and most people are so happy when their kids go to bed and we would just wake her up to hang out. Like she's just the coolest person in the world. And um, I just thought about her little face. You know, she was maybe two years old at that time. And um, and then I said, man, and I always wanted to come here. Like I always wanted to go on Hajj. Like this, I've wanted this for all this time, because this is what made Malcolm X want to accept me into into, into his religion. Like this is the experience that Malcolm X said. Like, yeah, you can be it. you can be what I am. And then all of these elders and all these people, like, this is the experience, you know? And so I'm like, here I am. This is what I've always wanted. And I opened my eyes and I just realized that every single thing I've ever prayed for, everything I've ever asked for, when it's all ridiculous, like, a lot of it sounds so ridiculous. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm from Minnesota and I look like I look. You know what I'm saying? Like, why? Why should I be at at Rock the Bells with, with... Hanging out with De La Soul, watching, you know, my friends, (laughs) watching uh, Ali Shahi Muhammad and and Tribe Called Quest rock a set. And, you know what I'm saying? Like, why should Rakim, why should somebody come get me and be like, Rakim's asking for you? You know what I'm saying? Like, what what is this? What is this life? And like, all of these things that I asked for, not to mention all the things I never thought about. Like all the things that I wanted, all the people that I wanted to be close with, I'm close with all of them. The people that I, that I love, you know, and and it's just continued to grow since then, but I just, it really was the gratitude of, and the realization that all these things that I asked for, that I got all of them. <laughs> And so... Then the harshness with myself just melted. And it's just like, you know what? All of this is part of this journey. All of it. Nearness is part of it. And even distance is part of it. Like it's all part of a relationship. Like this is a real living relationship with the source of it all. And like we're going to be close sometimes and we're going to feel distant sometimes. But even in our distance, and what I learned since then is that sometimes, what one of my teachers told me is that sometimes he said, you know, somebody like you that you similar to Rumi, maybe not to make claims that I'm like Rumi, but you know, you, you have, you're outwardly known and you have this feeling you're this idea of yourself. Like I'm this Muslim guy, I'm this young imam and I'm this guy. And you have an identity and people know you for it. And then somewhere on the inside, you feel like a hypocrite. Like you feel like, man, am I even real? and you have this feeling of distance but you want to be close like you want to feel it you want to feel close you know and what one of my teachers told me is like sometimes Allah allows people to be in that state and then so that when he brings them near they 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 have tasted it they know it on a different level that's not about books that's not some lecture you heard from somebody else like it's a real genuine experience that you have of of wanting, of desiring to be near and then being brought in again. And then from that time forward, man, that trip was amazing. I mean, just, you know, amazing experience after amazing experience. And I'm afraid that I probably, some of them I probably don't even remember because when I sit and think about it, there's there are things that come back, that things that come back up for me, you know. One of the things that I really thought about, on that trip was the fact that well, actually let me say something else about this first i want to talk about music in a minute but you know so we do the mecca thing and then when you get out of that state of ihram what happens is they shave your head so you can you're allowed to put your clothes back on <laughs> and imam suleyman hamid you know he's culturally from our community so he's like man you go and we completed our 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 ceremonies and uh You know, now you get to take take you a shower. He said, man, you get to put your drawers back on, brother. (laughs) It's so great, like, man, practicing your religion with people from your culture. You know, when we were leading up to it, I was supposed to call him and check in with him and just have kind of an initial conversation. And I missed a bunch of calls because I was on tour. And I said, man, I'm so sorry I missed our last two phone calls. And he goes, man, I know you're on a war tour with Muhammad, my man, going each and every place with a bike in his head. I said, oh, man. So he said, you get to put your drawers back on. But then we went to Medina. And, you know, Mecca is like a hustle and bustle kind of place. It's very challenging. It's really, um, you, you know, it's kind of like being in New York on on steroids. It's crazy. You know, just the amount of the amount of tension and you're competing with all these people you know those are the people that's the place where the prophet Muhammad peace be upon him received his mission and where he started his work and those people opposed him you know he was basically challenging their social order by saying you know slaves are equal to their uh to the people that think they own them and uh you know that animals have rights and women are not property women actually own property and um you know, that really all of the, that place, that the, the Kaaba had become a place to house all of the idol gods uh, of the different people, and they would come and visit them. And so they had a tour, tourism industry based around that. So what the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was saying is like, these stones and all this stuff, these things are not deities. And especially if they belong to a certain people. La ilaha illallah. There are no deities. There's one universal creator and source of us all. And it's not in a rock and it's not a stone and it's not a. It is the reality behind all of these things. It's not a person. It's not, you know, it is a the reality that brought all of us in that we all are relating to that gives us all our life and all of our guidance and the source of love and the source of and the creator of all physical things so even what we're studying in the sciences and the muslims excel in science and the muslims created the foundation of a lot of modern science because we're relating to to the physical world and observing it and trying to understand it as like this is the expression of the same source of it all. So like it's a a spiritual practice for us to do science. We don't have this war between religion and science that some other religions do. And, you know, the more we've learned about science, the more we appreciate the revelation of the Quran, and the more we uh, appreciate the Prophet Muhammad. But when you're in this city of Mecca, that's where they opposed him. And this other city called Yathrib, uh, where there was a Jewish community, they actually invited him to come. And so he came and that city changed it became known not as Yathrib anymore, but uh, El-Medina, al medina, El medina Munawara, the enlightened city, the glowing city, the city of light. But it's known for, for short as Medina. So you go to Medina and you leave this like hustle and bustle of Mecca and you go to a place that is just completely peaceful and serene and quiet and sweet. And it that even though the sun feels cooler and there's breeze and it feels like, man, things just smell beautiful. It's there's still as many people, but that, that that spirit of kind of like smashing into each other just transforms to this spirit of like togetherness and relax and and calm and stillness and sweetness and service and love. Like that's where the love happens. And you go there and you actually visit the burial place of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. He died in our mother, Aisha. He died in her house, in her lap. And they buried him right there. And he died right outside. So there's an area between his house and his, the place where he stood up to give his talks, his mimbar. Uh, and that space in between his house and his mimbar is really special space. It's called the rauda, or like the garden. And it's, it's described as like you're, you're almost in, you're in spiritually and symbolically, you're in paradise at that moment when you're in between those those two places. And the Prophet's Mosque is one of the most beautiful structures that you could witness. And the people that live in that city, there's just something inexplicably special about that place. Like people say, like, if the only reason to be a Muslim is to be in Medina, it's enough. If that's all you get, it's enough, just experiencing that place. So we got to go to Medina. And, um, yeah, so many amazing experiences in the city of Medina. One of the things that I thought about so much when I was on that trip is that, you know, there are people in the Islamic tradition who believe that music, there's a conversation about music. And some of our scholars even said that music is forbidden. And there are a lot of them that say that, and they're legitimate scholars, and so that's a legitimate opinion. But that's never been the consensus among our scholars. There are scholars that say that music just needs to be taken very, very seriously because especially, you know, there's never any question about the drums and even about movement and about dancing to the drums. Uh, The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, one time they were having in that mosque in Medina they were having a ceremony for the Eid, for the celebrations that Muslims have twice a year, one at the end of Ramadan and then one during the time of the pilgrimage. And some of the, some of the Ethiopian, like the, the African Muslims, were playing drums and they were dancing for the festival inside the mosque. And some of the Arabs said, You shouldn't do that, you should stop. And the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, No, no, this is their culture. And they, you, you have to let them do this and not only that but our mother aisha the prophet's wife who was a young lady uh she said i want to see i can't see there was a crowd around them this is inside the mosque of the messenger of god peace be upon him and so he uh, put him on her sho- put her on his shoulders the way they do at festivals sometimes and she watched and she was watching them play drums and dance for the festival and after a while he he asked her have you seen enough and she said no i'm watching this and so he Served her and held her on his shoulders, and she watched some more until they were until they were finished. And that also poetry and singing, singing and poetry are really one in the Islamic tradition. And in the Prophet's mosque, he also, peace be upon him, built a second minbar for, for a poet named Hassan bin Thabit. And he and, and he prayed for when Hassan is making poetry. That the angel that the angel, this Gabriel, the same one that, that delivered the Quran to the Prophet Muhammad, that the angel would support him and and inspire him. And so poetry is celebrating our tradition. drumming is celebrating our tradition. but there's conversation around musical instruments, especially flutes and guitars and things pianos and stuff with strings, because of the major impact that this stuff has on the heart. when someone pl- when, when, when these instruments are played, you know, musical masters know that you're communicating, you're accessing the heart of a human being and changing their state almost without their permission. It's very, very, it's really just serious stuff and it needs to be taken seriously, both if we're going to listen to music because who am I opening my heart to and what are they putting in there? Like, what are they doing with this access to my heart? Because... If I listen to certain music, I feel like fighting. If I listen to certain music, I feel like making love. If I listen to certain music, I, it it puts me in different states. And I should, you know, I should know what's in the food that I eat. I should know, you know, who's who's delivering this stuff to my heart, the food of my heart. And also, we should be extremely careful if we're going to play music. And so, there's a difference of opinion. But I was speaking. I was having a real moment of closeness with the creator. And I was saying, if there really is something problematic with this music, then take it away from me, to even take the desire of it away from me. But if this is good for me, and if this is my role, then make me more focused than I've ever been. Make me more fearless than I've ever been. Make me more diligent than I've ever been. And so I came home from that trip And I made Morning in America and I really started with not only, but I just had this feeling like every single breath is going to be dedicated to my relationship with the divine, everything that I do. And so I started doing organizing and I also rededicated myself to practicing and learning my religion, which led me to the Bay Area, which uh, actually is what led us to Istanbul. Imam Zayd Shaker, who is Muhammad Ali's spiritual advisor, Allah preserve him, give him a long life. You know, our our dear, like one of our fathers in this religion, and in our community, he was on the podcast and one of the one of the first early guests on the podcast. Go back and check that out. But uh, my wife, when I came back, my wife actually came on a study trip. Like they did a uh, an intensive retreat in Konya, where Shams Baba is going to be buried, where Rumi is, and. Um, you know, so that, so she was the first one to come here. And she said, uh, Someday we're going to live in Istanbul. And I just trust her intuition. She doesn't assert herself in that particular way very often. But when she does, it's like, man, this is serious. So when she came home and said that, she said, We're going to live in Istanbul. I mean, that's why we're here. So that was my first, that was my first trip to, uh, to Mecca. And when I came back, it's like all I could think about is all I could talk about you know and i did come back to organizing and to recording with a vengeance like i made more music in the year after that than i've ever made in any period of time um that was a a strange time also in the sense that uh, my man ant who's one of my dearest friends and we made most of my most of my music in my catalog i made with him and he's one of my dearest and closest brothers and friends ant was actually in the bay at that time. And I hadn't really gone to the bay, but I came back. And I actually bought my house, was only less than a mile from Ant's Crib. Because like I said, I'm partially blind being albino, so I can't drive, so I need to, walk. Wherever I want the focus of my life to be, I have to live nearby it. I have to live in walking distance of it. So when I was a teenager and, you know, 18, 17, first moved out of the house, I lived in walking distance from Masjid Anur in North Minneapolis so that I could walk there. Or I could, I live like right off Broadway, so I would sometimes would jump on the number 14 bus, but I could walk, you know what I'm saying, to the Masjid, to the mosque. And then... At another phase of my life when I was all about my career, you know, and like wanted to build my career, I lived in walking distance from the Rhymesayer's office in Uptown. And then so when we bought our house though, I said, okay, I, my career is going, it's happening. I can make records, I can put them out. There's people that want to listen to them. I want to make a lot of music so I'm going to live right near Ant. So I moved close to Ant's house and almost immediately, he like he started spending almost all of his time in the Bay. And so living near him meant that I walked over there to change light bulbs and collect all his mail and make sure no one was messing with his house and all that kind of stuff. I basically was just kind of like looking after his crib. But I didn't have him around and he wasn't there. And he and I weren't connecting. It was another part of the like deep challenge that I was having when I left to go to, to Hodge the first time. And right before I left, I had started working with Jake One. So when I came back from that trip, not only did I did I really get busy doing a lot of community organizing and activist stuff, but also really dug in with Jake One. So in one year in a one year period, we put out a free album on uh, Valentine's Day, which again is the anniversary of me becoming a Muslim. And uh, <laughs> so that was like a free album called The Bite Marked Heart. And that's, uh, you can get it on streaming services. That's a, full, a little project that we made about, it's all songs about relationships. I think Ant actually produced at least two of the songs on there. And then we made a full album, Morning in America, Dreaming in Color, that just celebrated its 10 year anniversary. Uh, so that, that album, we made the, the full thing of that. And then also me and Jake one did a full mixtape of just demos, like the things that we didn't put on the album, because I wanted that album to really be a message driven project. So the songs that we made like the rap songs and you know things that didn't necessarily fit the message of the album we did a joint called Left in the Deck. So the way that I used to work is I would always make demo tapes for I would make like demo recordings first on a handheld mic wasn't really thinking about the sound quality just wanted to get like a two track of the beat and write this write the song spit it Just get it out enough so you could hear the idea of the song and decide if that's a song that we want to use. So we did a full project, and I think that right now is only available on YouTube, unfortunately. It's not on streaming services or anything, but it's really dope. I mean, I you know what I'm saying? I made it, but I'm saying it's a project that I feel really good about. I would put it right there with my albums. So we did really three three full projects. And then also there were extra singles, the writer's block single. We did one called Not A Day Goes By. So I came back really motivated. And it had been 10 years, you know, since that, that first time that I went. I was actually just recently living in Istanbul. I flew back to Minneapolis to start the East Coast leg of our tour, of the Travelers Tour. and. I do all my flying with a certain airline. I do all my flying on Delta because Delta is, has a hub in Minneapolis. I've just always done my flying on that, on that airline. It's really good because a lot of times security will bother me to the point where I, I miss the flight. You know, they'll hold me up, search me, search all my stuff that I've been pulled off of flights. So Delta has been working with me for so long that they just, they already know. You know what I'm saying? Like they have a record of when, if you get 4S... They know it, and I always know because I can't check in online, which I usually check in on their app, but I can't do it. If I try to check in online, it's like, oh, we're experiencing a trial problem. Please go to the desk. I'm like, okay, I'm about to get 4S. So I go, and they're like, yeah, you got 4S again. And if I miss the flight, I just let them know, and they'll rebook me for free, and a lot of times I still they figure out a way that I can still make it the same day. So I go, and I book my flight, and I didn't really even look too closely at it But I realized I'm flying through Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, which is the city that you fly to when you want to go to Mecca. So it's like I usually would fly Istanbul to Paris or Amsterdam, and then Amsterdam to New York or Amsterdam to Minneapolis, or sometimes I do Amsterdam to Seattle or L.A., which is mega long. But this time I was flying Istanbul to Jeddah, Jeddah to New York, New York to Minneapolis. I'm like, wait a minute, what? I didn't realize when I first bought the flight. I think I even used miles to get the flight. So I'm like, yo, and it's only a three hour flight from Istanbul, I'm like, yo, I'm right near, it hadn't even crossed my mind how close I was. And so I tried to change my flight and get a longer layover time, but it didn't work. And I ended up going and sitting in the airport in Jeddah and wasn't able to leave the airport and had to go on a flight. But I said, okay, now I know I can do that. So when I booked my travel back, I booked it from, uh, from Chicago, I went and I saw my teacher, Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah, uh, after my last run. And from there, flew directly from there to, uh, to D.C. because they had an Air Saudi flight from D.C. to Jeddah. And uh, I had everything ready to go. Like, I, I got into the state of Ihram, so I took the shower and everything with no products. And I had my two garments ready ready to go. And they actually, when you fly Saudi Arabia Airlines, it's Air Saudia, they tell you, like, we're about to pass the place where you need to be in Ihram if you plan to go to Mecca. So they announce it, go into the bathroom, and uh, you see all the people that are going to make the pilgrimage, all the men anyway, come out with our two towels on, and you're trying to get used to the idea of being in public, feeling so exposed, like you just feel so vulnerable, because it's like, man, there's just this little thin piece of cloth in between me and the, and, the, and the world, you know what I'm saying, and the public, like I'm basically naked in public. Like I feel like I just got out the shower. But it was different. So it had been over 10 years. It's actually been 12 years since the time that I made Hajj, I think. And now a lot of things have changed in Saudi Arabia. When I went there the first time, they had these beautiful facilities, you know, these like big five-star hotels. And honestly, I don't love all of that. Um, there's stuff that really has been really controversial in the Muslim world because they wanted to build all these huge hotels to facilitate the tourism, but they built like this big clock tower that actually towers over the Kaaba in Mecca. There's actually a prophecy from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that relates to that. It's like, why did you guys build this? You know that there's one of the prophecies of like the end of time that that would happen, but they still built it. And the there's a lot of uh, mixed feelings about the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and some of the things that they've done. But one, of the, but one of the things I noticed is when I first went there that they had these beautiful facilities, but they were really poorly run, like not to diss anybody, but it's just like I've been in five star hotels, six star, I've been in seven star hotels. It's the facility is right, but the way that it's run is just so challenging. It's so difficult, you know what I'm saying? To get basic amenities and just to get stuff running in in a, in a basic way. Since then, there's been a number of changes in the way that public life is in Saudi Arabia. And a, a lot of people have a lot of opinions about it. I got my own. That's not what I'm here to do. But one of the things that they did that I think is dope is that women are really part of public life in Saudi Arabia now. You know, that's a very specifically Saudi thing, the the thing of like women can't drive and all this kind of stuff. In the rest of the Muslim world, it's not like that. Um, and what I noticed is that not only are women part of public life, but women at least from what I could see, and the, the the customer service people and the officials that I interacted with, like they're running the show and the show is running smoothly now. Like it was so easy compared to last time where it was hours of processing just to get into the country, just to prove to them that I'm Muslim, you know what I'm saying? So that I can go to the holy precincts. I got in this time and they have a visa on arrival for people in certain countries. And I used my U.S. passport when I went. I didn't use my Turkish uh, residency card. So you get in, and it's like visa on arrival, which is huge. I went in there, and and again, all of the the people that are running the like the the passport control control people, uh, they're uh, like customs people. They're all women. I went in and there's actually a kiosk, like this machine that you can go and check in and get your visa on arrival. One of the things it does is take a photo of you. And man, I've used these machines all over the world. And I'm standing there trying to get it and it will not take my picture. And the women realize I'm having trouble. So she comes up and she's like, what's wrong? Back up, kneel down a little bit. All right, stand up a little taller, get a little closer, try this. And so there's this whole group of women like trying to help me get my, like take my picture. And finally we realize it's not, and i i understand enough arabic to know what they're saying and can commun- can communicate with them a little bit but they're asking me like where are you from and what and they didn't they weren't grilling me about are you muslim but it's just like oh you're making your umrah and they just asked a couple kind of questions and my responses let them know that i'm muslim and i told them i converted to islam which for them is a big deal they really love that oh mashallah tabarakallah so they're talking about, like, why won't this thing take his picture? And one of them was telling the the other one in Arabic, she's like, he's too white. Like, he doesn't have any... Like the machine, the machine doesn't even know that this is a face, because like there's no eyebrows, you know what I'm saying? The eyebrows are the same color as the skin. Like there's no eyelashes, there's no definitive features, you know what I'm saying? They're basically like this machine doesn't even know that this is a human face, so it's saying like, put your face in the fi- in the frame so we could take a picture. And one of the women told told her she's like, no, it's it's his nur, like it's the light that's coming on. It's it's his inner light. And she's not joking, you know what I'm saying? Like this is like that's she's like, no, he, he converted to this religion. He was invited. That's what she said. She said Allah invited him to this religion. It's the light on his face. It won't allow this machine to take his picture. So, and I've had a lot of experiences like that, you know, in that in that environment, you know, in that place. And so, uh, finally, they got me checked in, and I went by myself this time, which was a very different experience. I went by myself, I went at night, I landed at like five in the afternoon or maybe seven at night or something like that. By the time I got to Mecca, it's you just take an Uber now. It's so different. Like you get in there, you get Visa on arrival and you just order an Uber. And they have a, a train now. It normally was a six hour bus ride. That's if you don't have traffic. In traffic, it can be 12 hours bus ride from Mecca to Medina for, to the city of the Prophet, sallallahu And this time, like they just got a, a fast train that takes a little over two hours. And they got this beautiful new airport, like world-class, beautiful airport. And um, so I got in and just ordered an Uber and took a Uber from Jeddah to Mecca to my, to my hotel, checked in. Again, it's women running the show. Everybody is, everything's running smoothly. I asked her, I said, you know, tomorrow, is it okay to get a late checkout? I'm supposed to check out at 11, but my flight doesn't leave until like seven at night and it's only an hour away. So if I could check out at noon, that would be good. And she was like, you wanna check out at two? And this is like a major hotel chain. I've never had that. I've never had anybody offer that unless they were like a fan or something. Sometimes you get a fan at the front desk and they're like, don't even worry about it, I got you. She's like, no, we're not sold out tonight. So yeah, you can you can stay till 2 p.m. if you like. Uh, we just need to make sure that our people can clean your room. They go home at three, so if you, you can stay till two. It's like, man, this just runs so beautifully and so well now, now that women are, you know what I'm saying, doing their thing there. So I, it was at nighttime, and I went um, there. They had a shuttle service, and I went over in my ihram, and I was able to you know, lead myself or do the, the, hajra or the umrah, the, the pilgrimage uh, rituals and ceremonies by myself. And I just really took my time doing them you know, and it's it's not as crowded, it's not as packed. I was actually able to touch the Kaaba. I wanted to kiss the black stone, but man, there still was like a group of people just going nuts. I saw a man tried to crowd surf. Like people saved their whole lives to go to Mecca. It's really a big deal. Like in the Muslim world for 1400 years, people's one life journey has been to get to Mecca. And to touch the Kaaba and to kiss the Black Stone. So when you get there, I mean, there's people that are, you know, very enthusiastic, you know what I'm saying? And I'm just, I'm not that kind of person. Even though I'm big and I'm I'm a strong person, and if I wanted to, I could debo my way to the to the to the Black Stone. But I don't do that, especially in those situations. It's like if you're patient, a lot of times a way will open up. And sometimes there are guards that if they see you being patient, they'll actually clear a way for you. Um, and that didn't happen this time, but I was able to touch the Kaaba, which was a very beautiful thing. And then I finished out my rites and I came back to the hotel and I was just exhausted. Um, and so the next day, I went back. And, you know, one of the things that we believe is that if, you're, if your hajj is accepted during the, the big hajj season, then all of your mistakes are forgiven, your lifetime of mistakes are forgiven. And for the Umrah, um, when you when you go there on like a personal pilgrimage, that's not the big communal one, your mistakes hopefully will be forgiven from the last time, your sins from the last time, from the last time till now will be forgiven. And I'm just gonna share this kind of personal thing because that's what we do on this, on this, on this show. But I had really been struggling with some people in my life that really I felt betrayed me Um, and some of them were in the community like some of them were people that I looked up to people that I supported people that I you know that I really believed in that I felt really had betrayed me or abandoned me or um, misled me you know and I just had this feeling about some people and One of the things that I've heard from all of our spiritual masters, they all say very similar things. They said, you know, people are asking all these questions about how to advance spiritually. You know, and we believe that there is a day of reckoning, there's a day of judgment, there's a day of when all things are made clear. Good, bad, bad, and otherwise. So we learn amazing secrets about ourselves, beautiful things. You know, you did something nice for somebody and you don't realize that that actually was, that actually saved their life, you know? You don't even know it. Or like, you know, ancestors that you have that you didn't even realize. Like, I'm actually the the, the descendant of so-and-so. Or, you know, you, the, your descendants that come after you. Things that they did because of things that you put in motion. And there's like all these beautiful realities and challenging ones. But one of the things we believe is that the other people in life that we wronged, they have the opportunity to take their rights from us, to, to claim their rights. People who are oppressed, uh, their oppressors have to pay them back before even answering to God. Even before accounting with God or settling up with God, you settle up with creation. So our belief in this system is not spiritual bypassing. And you'll see that Muslims like are always asking for forgiveness. Uh, you know, while, while during the end of Ramadan, usually you'll get messages from people that like, if I've harmed you or wronged you or offended you or hurt you, you please, you have to tell me what it is and give me the opportunity to make it, make, make it up to you because I want to be forgiven. And you'll see people say, and, you know, recently a friend of mine was visiting me in Istanbul and he said, you know, have you forgiven so-and-so? And so, People ask our teachers about this reality of, of uh, you know, all these things in a spiritual path. I find myself performing when I'm doing spiritual things. I know that I'm you know I'm there's a performative element to my worship or to, you know, what do I do about that? or like I notice that sometimes I'm insincere or I notice that sometimes it's hard for me to forgive or I notice that um you know I, i'm I'm quick to anger. Or, you know, I'm, I find myself being vain or arrogant or vengeful or, you know, I, I, how to, like, help me. I want to get right. Again, this is a religion for people and a path for people that set our sights on being all the way beautiful. And we don't ever think we got there, but, like, we, that's what we're trying to do. And so that when you get with these people that have ascended the spiritual path and and the mountain— You ask them like give me advice about this and so often what you hear them say is I have one answer to all of these questions that you're asking me and that is you have to forgive everybody you have to forgive everybody and so somebody was asking me have you forgiven so-and-so and And I've actually taken it because I'm like I I don't know I can say you know I won't complain about this person on the day of judgment I believe that Allah has forgiven them I don't know like what this even mean I can't deny the fact that I was wronged and I was hurt, or at least I've really felt that way. That's how I feel. That's true to me. That's, you know, my truth, as they say. To me, it really feels like I was lied to or wronged or hurt or betrayed or, you know. And that's true. But I don't want them to be punished for it, you know. So, like, is that forgiving them? And then one of one of the great ones that's alive today said, you know, what do we do if we want to forgive everybody but we're we're not sure in our heart? And so he said, the thing to say out loud to the Creator, to Allah, is, I'm the master of my tongue, so I right now today am saying that I forgive everybody. I don't hold anything. I have no right over any other person. Everyone is forgiven in my heart. Everyone is forgiven before God, and I, I, I make an oath. I will not com- complain about these people on the day of reckoning, and I hold nothing in my heart against these people. And the teacher said, what you say is, I'm the master of my tongue, and so my making my tongue declare this and make this vow. But Allah, you're the master of my heart, and so I ask you to make it true. And so I went back to the Kaaba by myself, and I just— sat and I was praying quietly and I had this list of people I was praying for and it just came to me like all of these major violations that I've had of my own principles in my life. The times that I've messed up. The times that I've broken promises to myself. The times that I've indulged in things I wasn't supposed to or the times that I fell short for things or the times that I hurt people or the times that I abandoned people or the times where I was upset with something that someone did for them to me, but I went overboard, you know, in talking about it or in, you know, maybe I exaggerated. Exaggerations are lies, you know, and maybe I had righteous anger or indignation about stuff, but maybe I went overboard. Maybe I said things I didn't have the right to say and I didn't care because that person wronged me, you know what I'm saying? Or maybe there was someone that I was supposed to look out for and I didn't. Or maybe that there, there's something I promised to do and didn't do it. Or maybe there's just straight up things I'm supposed to do that I, I promised myself I wouldn't do anymore. And I'm still, I struggle with doing them, you know. And I got to this place where I was saying those things out loud. But I, but the the space around the Kaaba, that mosque there is so big because it's meant to hold millions of people. So if you go there, you can be alone there. Like you can be alone And I was on the, the, the balcony, but I'm like looking directly at the Kaaba. Maybe I was in the same place that I was at when I realized the first time I went there that I had received everything I ever asked for. But these are really foundational things in a person's relationship with the source of it all. And I was like, for the first time, like we don't necessarily, we don't have confession in our religion. So like we don't sit with another person and tell them the mistakes we made. Those are things that we... If we wronged somebody, we have to try to make it up and we ought to try to rectify it. It's not enough to just go to God and say, Oh, Allah forgive me. Like you gotta rectify when you've harmed somebody, even just their heart and their feelings, not to mention have taken their rights away from them. You gotta make reparations. You gotta make up for it. So we don't have this thing where like we we say it to a person. And so I was alone, like there's no one around me. And I was saying out loud, Allah, I did this, I did that. And I and I was just so overcome with this feeling of I don't know if it's remorse or just like how aware of the fact that like I, I've i done things that I'd said I would never do. And we all have, you know what I'm saying? This is not a confession to you. I'm not saying, you know, it's not like, man, uh, <laughs> I killed a man in Reno just to watch him die. I'm saying, uh, you know, I'm out here living life and I'm, you know, we... This is part of our spiritual path. So I'm not saying anything here that isn't true of any other living person. You know, and I was overcome with this feeling of just like desire to be forgiven. I realized how badly I wanted to be forgiven. And I was like, I was broken down in tears. Like, it's good that like putting your face on the ground, like fetal position, prostrating is part of our religion. It's not weird to see that, but like I was, I was overwhelmed with this feeling. And in that moment, I was like, "Man, I forgive everybody. I forgive," and I said it and I meant it. I forgive everybody and it's it doesn't it's not even about whether or not they actually did the thing because i did the things i was asking forgiveness for you know one of the first things we learn one of the first sayings of the prophet muhammad we learn is that actions are judged by their intention but the second one we learn is those who want mercy from the source of all mercy have to show mercy you have to be merciful to receive mercy and i was just overcome with my need to be forgiven and and that was the point where i'm like i forgive everybody i don't have anything i hold nothing against anybody and anyone that i may have held something against they pro- they probably feel a way about that and maybe i maybe i maybe they need to forgive me too maybe i need them to forgive me too but i desire for them to forgive me as well you know and there's there's you know there's all kinds of people that have done all these different things some of them, it's like, man, I was being criticized publicly and there's people that I have done good things with them or for them and they didn't say anything. You know, they know things about me that counteract this narrative that of people that are criticizing me publicly and they didn't say anything. Maybe I felt a way about that. I was like, man, I feel nothing. I feel no sense of entitlement towards anybody and... I've just ever like repeated that ever since then. You know, and this is not spiritual bypassing. Like one of the things that happens with with spiritual people or spiritual traditions is like, you know, I'm gonna have this spiritual experience so I don't have to change in the real world and I don't have to do anything about the oppression in the world. No, to the contrary. To the contrary, it's like this, these things actually make us more dutiful. They make us more uh, focused than ever because I am not operating, hopefully. And I mean, you know, in all this, the ego is always there like, yeah, give me that, give me that, give me that, give me that. Yeah, tell this story. Tell them about what you were crying when you were crying on the floor. Look how how good that's going to make you look. Yeah, my ego is here. Like my ego is present. My ego is not voting. (laughs) My ego is, (laughs) like when the vote is being taken, my ego is saying, yay for like, I'm owning this, you know what I'm saying? And that's, you know, it's just a reality, but I'm saying my genuine, it's not a claim, it's a desire and it's a an experience of like, man, it's more real to me than ever before, my own like need for grace and mercy and the desire that I have to show grace and mercy to other people and, um So yeah, that's what i got on here to say. How long have I been talking? Uh, Okay, about two hours. (laughs) About two hours. But you know, um, I wanted to share that because it's a major experience and it's a profound thing um, that I thought may be be, uh, of interest and may be useful and helpful to others. You know, the, the spiritual path really, it, it's all connected to me. The work we do in the world, the work we do in ourselves, the arts, the music that we make, the creativity that we have, this podcast, the desire for love. Amir Suleiman, the great poet, says so many amazing things. I could sit here and spit Amir Suleiman and Yasin Bey stuff all day. Yasin Bey says, this is from my favorite band, the dedication to my favorite band. This is from my favorite band, the human beings. It's like, that's my favorite band. This is from my favorite band, the human beings, the faithful, the graceful, the classic, and the tragic, the evidence of things unseen, the Book of Light, the mansions in the moon, and the bones of Pharaoh, the pharaoh. Recently discovered, yet everything but new. The doubters' doubts about it never made it untrue. Life, life itself, the gift. The peace and the pressure. Can't remember how we came or win a bet about how we'll exit. SubhanAllah. Can't remember how we came or win a bet about how we'll exit. From the start, the only thing promised is the end. Certain is the end. It's promised to all and none know not when. The heartbreak from yesterday and fret for tomorrow will leave you now full of anxiety and hollow. If you pray, don't worry. If you worry, don't pray. That's a quote from my mama. It's a poem I heard her say. From the tall castle wall to the mean teeth streets, may you have what you want, and may you want what you need. (laughs) I mean, so much beauty we forget and get reminded that we can be anywhere and find it. So much beauty we forget and get reminded that we can be anywhere and everywhere and find it. So I'm going to end with that, those words from my man Yasin Bey. And Amir Suleiman says that I've learned that the same thing that draws a fiend to the pipe is the thing that draws a human being to the light, the love of love and the hope of hope. Like what is driving us all is a desire to be loved. All All the times that I've ever hurt others, all the times that I've ever gone off track, all the times I've ever gone off course, It's because me and all of these other people, when we wrong, when we sin, when we betray our ideals and our our virtues and our our ethics and our morals and our codes, when we betray ourselves, when we betray each other, when we betray the source of it all, we're betraying goodness itself, which is Allah. When we betray, it's because we got our signals crossed. We're looking for love. We're looking for, for wholeness. We're looking for salam when we say "Assalamu alaikum, may, may wholeness be your state. We're looking to be reconnected with the source. We're looking for it, but we're just looking for it in the wrong place. You know what I'm saying? Lust. The problem with lust is that it's false love. We're using somebody else's body for an act that's supposed to be about connecting with them on all levels. It's not the be- It's not the the joy of. Se- it's not the joy of sex that makes it wrong. The joy of sex is something that we're that you know in Islam is celebrated. It's a ritual, it's a ceremony. You know what I'm saying? There's a reason why Muslims be having five and ten and fifteen kids and three. I'm saying that's one of the reasons, but like it has to be connected to the human reality on all levels. It can't just be using somebody for their for their body. Like we're here to connect on a life level with each other but we search for love in ways that are false, that are counterfeit, counterfeit love. And the problem with counterfeit money, like my man Azhar Usman pointed this out, counterfeit money, the problem with is, is, and what makes it illegal, like monopoly money isn't illegal, but counterfeit money, you go to jail because it looks like the real thing and it's not. And this is that's how we go off course. We get all these addictions, and we get we get all of these attachments to things that are actually just signs pointing us to the, the reality of it all. We don't want to be materialists. We don't want to be greedy. Even though material things can be a means to something beautiful, they can be important. We want to be responsible in the material world. We want to be responsible with all these things that we have in our hands. But really, the material world is not what's in our heart. What's in our heart is the source of it all. Love itself, goodness itself, light itself, mercy itself, justice itself. The balance of it all that only comes from being connected to the source. You get connected to the material expressions, these things that are just means. Dr. Cornel West, maybe he's quoting it from someone else, but I heard him say that we're supposed to love people and and use things, but instead we use people and we love things and use people. And I would take that a step further and say that we love the source, we're seeking the source of it all, and instead we get caught up in the means, you know, the means to an end. The means aren't ends in and of themselves, and so if the means actually betray the source, then the means become a, a block instead of a means. They become a roadblock. They become something that take us off course. And so what we're really all here doing, and we're just at different stages of that development, is we're all looking to get back to the source of it all. Because we have a soul, like we're a soul, and we're a heart, and we're an intellect, and we're a mind, and we also have an ego that we gotta deal with, that we have to discipline so that we can become whole. So that's what I wanted to share with you, and I'm grateful for you being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your just for sharing yourself with us, with me. Uh, the we always give special thanks to the Zakat Foundation. Head over there, Z A K A T U S on social media, zakatfoundation.org. Uh, also check out BetterHelp, B E T T E R H E L P dot com slash travelers, and get down with some therapy, man. There are plenty of people that reach out all the time that, that I actually help convert to Islam that want to become Muslim. Uh, some of them just want to know about stuff. And I'm, I'm at anybody's service who, for whom that's a serious thing. Like if that's a serious thing to you, I'm at your service in whatever way I can be. And it's a joy and it's a delight and it's an honor and it happens all the time. And it's not a requirement to, to be part of this thing at all because it's really between every individual and the, the divine, between you and the creator. Like that's not, you know, but in terms of service, if that's something that, uh, you know, that you're seeking, let me know. I'm here for you. And there's also a network of people that feel that way as well. Um, so thank you to our sponsors. Uh, special thanks to Emna Mirza and Mansur Panawala and Darren Washington and Last Word and to Aunt for letting us use the music and to Market Medina for the creating the logo for this podcast. Thanks to Ida Rashid and Shane Atkinson and all the people that talk to me about the podcast and who give me feedback on it. Uh, the Travelers podcast is produced by Brendan Kelly, a.k.a. BK1. It's a product of Travelers Media. We love you all dearly. We'll see you next week, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.